0: Inflation is coming down, Russia is on the run, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Everything's just, you know, it's wrapping up in a nice tidy bow right now. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, your online mining natural resources friend, here to help bring, you know, news that I don't... like. You know, I am getting more and more mystified in a sense by just what I'm seeing out there. And I guess that's the mass media. Like, I am just getting confused. You know, for example, like, remember for those of you who went around the world with me last week, remember that tweet with Ursula von der Leyen where she was giving her condolences to the victims of the attack in Saskatchewan, but then dropped. At the end of her tweet, I'll see you all in two weeks when I go to Saskatoon. So I did a search on Ursula von der Leyen, and the only stories relate to that horrific event. But, I mean, surely there is a news editor in Canada, at least, or even in Saskatoon, who is asking the question, what on earth is Ursula von der Leyen doing in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. As someone from Saskatoon, I would be asking that. You know, as a Saskatonian, I'm asking that. And I mean, at first when I thought about it, I thought maybe this has to do with uranium and potash. And maybe that still is the best bet. But you know what Saskatchewan is truly famous for is wheat. And uranium is kind of a long-term thing. Potash, maybe less so, still very important. I mean, this may all be on the menu as she goes to Saskatoon. And it is real. Like, I mean, I thought, well, maybe this is just a fake account. Like, I looked, like, this is a real thing. But there is zero news stories asking why she might be going, which is why... The northern miner is here to fill the void. So happy to help. So I'm speculating here, but I wonder if it's about wheat. Because if we go over to our Russia story, which, again, like, help me out here, guys. Like, I see these stories on Twitter on how the Russian foreign minister wasn't Peskov. It was another one. Let me just put this in the search here. So we get a real accurate... Germany red line, Russian envoy describes German arms deliveries to Ukraine as crossing red line, quote unquote, as crossing red line. So the weird thing, again, from the mass media perspective, is you want to see the news agencies that are reporting it, which almost makes me doubt it, but there are so many of them that. I go, this is probably real, and it was kind of trending on Twitter, but the agencies I see reporting on this red line story, which I would think would be on the front page of the New York Times, and maybe I'm out of line here, but the news organizations reporting on this are Anadolu Agency. In Google News, by the way, so these are verified news outlets, somewhat. We can say B92, something called Republic World, the mayor MEHR news agency, and then that's it. And then you go to these Reuters and DW stories that it is reported. Okay, so in DW, it's in the story, and the headline of that story is Russia struggling to reinforce front line as it prioritizes emergency defensive actions. And then within that story, it says Russian envoy says Berlin crossed red line. Now, DW is Deutsche Welle. Is fairly renowned. So, and when I think red line, and I'm going somewhere with this, this does all come back to resources. That is what I think where this all ends up. So just to follow the train of thought here, when I think of red line, I think of Obama, first of all, right, in Syria. And okay, screwing up the red line, but the point wasn't Obama not acting on it. The point is the language using the words red line. And so red line have come to be thought of as, if you do something that crosses a red line, there will be retaliation of some kind, okay? Now, if we agree with that language and then take it back to the envoy, uh, the Russian ambassador to Germany, Sergei Necheyev, okay, who used the red line terminology, And the reason they said red line is Germany crossed it for supplying lethal weapons to Ukraine that has killed civilians in the Donbass, from what I understand. Let me see if I can get a direct quote here, not to take too long on this. Okay, here it is. The very fact, and this is a quote, the very fact of supplying the Ukrainian regime with German-made lethal weapons used not only against Russian servicemen, But also against civilians of Donbass is the red line that the German authorities should not have crossed, including taking into account the moral and historical responsibility of Germany to our people for the crimes of Nazism during the Great Patriotic War, Nechayev said. So that is the full quote. Now, maybe he was speaking out of turn and that just came out. But we have to assume on a certain level that this sentiment is shared. I mean, we've seen it up to this point that the Russian media has basically described uh, Russia as facing basically having a war against NATO. So where I'm going with all this, because I think it all ends up with resources. If you're Russia, you're facing what you consider to be an aggressive NATO. So are you going to start sending missiles to Berlin? I don't think so, right? Unless you're ready for World War III, And probably if you're Russia, you're probably not ready for that yet, yet. But probably what you do, as they telegraphed like maybe a couple of weeks ago, that they were saying, I don't know, these are allegations, I don't know, I haven't done all the research on this, but they were saying that the the grain that was coming out of Ukraine was being basically funneled to Turkey and to Europe and not to poorer countries, as was the deal. That's what they were claiming. And as part of that, Putin was saying, I think it was at that Vladivostok speech or somewhere in there, he was saying, as a result of that, we should consider all commodities that are being sent to Europe as maybe something we shouldn't be sending over to Europe. Okay. So, and generally, Russia telegraphs ahead of time what it's going to do. So, the gas is off. If they start sending missiles, it's too much what do they do? I would say, so pure speculation here, and thank you for sticking with me on this speculation. As we will get to a fantastic episode, by the way, we have a fantastic interview with Stephen Stewart of OR Group. But just to finish the, the, the train of thought here, what do you do? I think first, you've already telegraphed it, you've given your threat, now you say you're crossing the red line. I think first you eliminate all shipments of any commodities to Europe, And then probably what you do next is you reduce, I think they, something like 5 million barrels of oil, I think they produce on the world market globally. Again, this is going by memory, but whatever the number is, maybe you just reduce that by half, oil goes up, and because all of a sudden you have a 2.5 million barrel a day shortage, maybe oil almost doubles, let's say, or 50% higher, you're almost making the same amount of money. Or something in the same ballpark on half the oil so that's where i'm going with this so right now i mean again we're kind of the media and the western governments are basically kind of high-fiving right now say russia's on the run inflation is on the run we got this i am hearing the question of what is the retaliation going to be so yeah so right now again I think that's what we need to be ready for in the West is a complete cutoff of all supplies that come out of Russia to Europe. And again, China is probably taking note on everything that is happening here, as we all know. So anyway, my speculation of the morning here. Thank you again for joining me. So again, fantastic interview with Stephen Stewart of Orr Group, who joins us once again. He discusses... The need for regulatory reform in Canada's mining sector, the regulatory bodies are taking too long, and there are too many of them, and it's basically just too complicated. As he says in the interview, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but not to be glib, but we just need a form that we can download that tells us what is required here. He basically says it's a black box when you are applying to have your mine permitted And that doesn't sound right. So basically, you have no idea what's going on. And you just get these calls later saying, you know, this is wrong. Okay, we have problems with this. And it's kind of back all to what I opened this program with, which is, I'm not sure the West realizes it's at economic war yet, because, and maybe I'm out of turn. Like, feel free to disagree, leave a comment. Like, maybe I'm completely out to lunch here. But My impression is we're at the minimum at an economic war. I mean, Russia is saying Germany is crossing red lines. And I asked Stephen, you know, are politicians calling you, asking you what they can do to help speed along your process? And he said, no. Basically, it sounds like nothing has changed. And I have to say, like, I am a little surprised. I mean, if the last six months is not a wake up call, what is? So anyway, enough of my, you know, speculations here. Let's look at what's going on at our events before we get into the very interesting news stories here. We have the Global Mining Symposium coming up September 28th and 29th. You can register for free. Just click on register your interest at events.northernminer.com. We have some fantastic speakers lined up, including Douglas Silver, who is a mineral economist. Chris Taylor, former CEO and president of Great Bear Resources, which was taken out by Kinross Gold for $1.8 billion. Dr. Harry Barr, from chairman and CEO of New Age Metals. Dr. Aaron Arbobicki, associate professor and faculty of engineering at the University of Alberta. Peter Dembicki of tier one silver. George Hemingway, who is always a great listen. Jean-Marc Lacoste, Jonathan Lafontaine, James Moorhead, Sean Wallace, and more. So 15 days, two weeks until the next Global Mining Symposium. Do not miss it, events.northernminer.com. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that... Let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have a new analysis on tail dam failures, and it's not good. Analysis, no reduction in tailings dam failures over the past two decades. This is by Henry Lazenby at the Northern Miner. A newly released assessment of global tailings management facilities, or TMFs, data, paints a jarring picture showing that relative to global mine production, there has been no improvement in the rate of significant failures according to the watchdog World Mine Tailings Failures (WMTF). According to data released for the first time on Tuesday, the rate was constant at 0.09 failures per billion tons of production in both the decades of 2000 to 2009 and 2010 to 2019. Quote, including the failures since 2019, the overall failure rate has increased to 0.1. End quote, confirmed the organization's executive director, Lindsay Newland-Boker, in a statement to the Northern Miner. Quote, we have lost ground, not made progress in preventing significant failures. There have been 35 significant failures through December 31st, 2021 on an estimated 340 billion tons of world mineral production. The organization now says it forecasts the worst decade in history for TMF failures. Quote, applying the failure rate of 0.1 to the expert predicted 184 billion tons of production between 2015 and 2024, we predict the worst decade in recorded history at 18 very serious failures. The decade 2010 to 2019 has only 15 very serious failures and a final quote here as all our published predictions since 2014 have proven accurate we have confidence in our current prediction of 13 catastrophic failures between 2025 and 2029 so it sounds like there is more work to be done here so this is a comprehensive article and just scrolling down for canada in canada none of the provinces have a specific de-risking mandate quote if it existed in the case of mount Polley. Where there was a massive tailings disaster the regulator could have demanded a stability analysis and suspended all operations until that was done with proper authority it could then have demanded corrective measures before allowing imperial metals to resume operations or any further tmf raises brazil has now such a system following valet's brumandinho disaster while there isn't a framework anywhere in the world that gives a perfect working model Newland Bowker said Canada had much more information at its disposal than most nations to take a more prominent leadership role. Quote, The value and excellence of Canada's mining law speak for itself in the stats, but Canada also has the least favourable ratio among the top three nations with the U.S. and Australia. But still, if legitimate stability issues are flagged in a new design or expansion, Canadian citizens, and especially Indigenous peoples, have a higher likelihood that the vetting process will be far more effective for them in preventing loss and delivering protection than people in the Philippines, Peru, Sumatra, and Mexico. And finally, a couple more paragraphs here, the NGO plans to publish a case study later this week outlining how Chinese-owned zinc interests on Indonesia's island of Sumatra pose a high risk to traditional communities. Quote, that paper concludes that the structure we have in place for world mineral supply, Will not be able to reach endangered host communities like those in Sumatra who are insulated from the influence of international council on mining and metals environmental stewardship guidelines major north american exchanges and any reforms in north american and the european legal frameworks specifically governing minerals and finally the public does not generally understand how much of what we all buy and use 67 percent comes from economically unstable nations pretty interesting stat of much of what we buy comes from economically unstable nations, continuing the quote, and at the expense of native peoples already facing food and water insecurity, and finally, without an external impetus to identify all high-hazard potential facilities and assure present stability as the Global Tailings Review could have done, it is obvious that the slow pace of even identifying actual at-risk facilities can only result in an escalated rate of catastrophic tailings failure. Basically, they're saying that the slower we are at identifying at-risk facilities, the more likely there is to be catastrophic tailings failure. Okay, well, that makes sense to me. Continuing on, Cornish Lithium secures UK government funding for demonstration plant. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi. Cornish Lithium, the startup hoping to lead the development of an industry for the battery metal in Britain... Has secured funding from the UK's National Innovation Agency to build a demonstration scale processing plant at its Trellivore Hard Rock Lithium Project. The unspecified amount from Innovate UK through the Automotive Transformation Fund ATF will help Cornish Lithium build the hydro. Metallurgical section of the plant, the company said. Quote, We are delighted to have been awarded this ATF grant as it will help accelerate our progress towards the commercial production of battery grade lithium hydroxide in the UK, the company's founder and CEO, Jeremy Rathall, said in a statement. So you can read the whole thing on northernminer.com, but basically, the UK government is helping facilitate lithium demonstration plants in the UK. So, more onshoring. Another story, Neocorp's demo plant tests rare earth recovery process on Elk Creek samples. More on-shoring, uh, it's by Jackson Chen. Neocorp Developments Demonstration Scale Processing Plant in Quebec has started processing ore samples from the company's Elk Creek Critical Minerals Project in Nebraska. The plant is intended to demonstrate that the company can extract and separate rare earth elements from ore mined at the project and that its simplified process for producing niobium, scandium and titanium is both technically and economically feasible. The demonstration plant will process Elk Creek ore samples in three phases. Phase 1 is designed to demonstrate a new approach to the initial processing of the ore that Neocorp expects to mine from the site. Phase 2 is designed to demonstrate an improved process for the second stage of leaching along with niobium and titanium separation. The third and final phase is designed to demonstrate the technical viability of separating high-purity versions of several target magnetic rare earth products from Elk Creek or samples, as well as confirming previously achieved high recovery rates for high-purity scandium trioxide." Okay, so what this tells me is they're actually quite a ways away from actually pulling this off. But they are on their way, so they have a plan. They have a plan on how to do this, but sounds like there is a lot of work to do. Continuing on. McEwen and Rio Tinto to jointly develop Copper Project in Nevada. This is by Cecilia Jemazmi. McEwen Copper, a subsidiary of McEwen Mining, has inked a deal with Rio Tinto that gives the global miner an option to become a majority joint venture partner in the Elder Creek Project in Nevada To exercise the option, Rio's subsidiary Kennecott Exploration would have to invest $18 million over a maximum of seven years. After that, the two companies would form an unincorporated joint venture where Kennecott would be the largest partner and project operator. So a copper project in Nevada. Interesting pairing there with McEwen Mining and Rio Tinto. Rio 2 appeals rejection of EIA, For Chile Gold Project, also by Cecilia Gemazmi, Canada's Rio 2 is appealing the rejection of the environmental impact assessment for its Phoenix Gold Project in Chile's northern Maricunga region, arguing the dismissal is not consistent with the environmental assessment process that took place over the past two years. The miner says it has identified numerous discrepancies with factual and procedural matters in the document outlining the reasons why the Atacama Regional Evaluation Commission ruled in July against the project's environmental impact assessment." I mean, this kind of speaks to what Stephen Stewart is saying in Canada. I'm sure it's qualitatively different, but what is the same is challenges with permitting and how it's just a bit of a black box. The Environmental Qualification Resolution, the administrative process through which the Environmental Assessment Service explained the rationale for its decision, acknowledged the project met environmental regulations and requirements. It noted, however, that the company had not provided enough information on how it aimed to eliminate the, quote, adverse impacts, and quote, it would have on the area's wildlife species, specifically on chinchillas, guanacos, and vichunas. So, interesting. Equinox Gold's Los Filos Mine hit by blockade, also by Cecilia Gemazmi. Operations at Equinox Gold's Los Filos Mine in Mexico have been suspended as a result of a blockade by members of the nearby Mezcala community. The company said on Thursday, the move, qualified by the Canadian miner as, quote, illegal, is preventing the delivery of certain supplies that are required to maintain Los Filos running. Equinox will engage the community leadership to find a solution that allows it to resume full operations. And finally, Los Filos has been frequently hit by community and union protests in the past two years, including a two-month-long blockade by members of the Zalillo community, which affected the company's 2020 production and cost guidance. And finally, a couple of headlines here. Great Panther to delist from TSX and New York Stock Exchange as it seeks creditor protection. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi, Great Panther Mining has stopped trading in Toronto and is subject to delisting both at home and in New York after announcing it had filed for creditor protection. The cash-strapped Canadian miner warned on Tuesday that it would likely default on several material debtor agreements owing to liquidity constraints. Great Panther has also placed its Tucano Gold and Silver Mine in Brazil on care and maintenance while its local subsidiary undergoes a court-supervised arrangement with its creditors. Interesting. And finally, Ivanhoe Gekka Mines kick off construction at Kipushi Zinc Mine in DRC, also by Cecilia Jamasmi. So Ivanhoe Mines continues to make progress in the DRC. Ivanhoe Mines and Congo's state mining company, Geca Mines, have begun construction activities at the historic Kipushi underground zinc copper mine, which they plan returning to production by late 2024. During a groundbreaking ceremony, it noted that the use of existing rehabilitated surface and underground infrastructure would allow the joint venture to keep costs relatively low while taking only two years to reach production. And we have a quote from Ivanhoe Mines President Marna Klita, who said, Quote, Kipushi is exceptional, not only because of the renowned Big Zinc deposit, which is one of the world's richest ore bodies, but more importantly because of the people of Kipushi, and the unique partnerships that make today's ceremony possible. And then there's even a picture, you should go to northernminer.com to see this picture of the Kipushi open pit from November 1928. Yikes. With that, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. To metal prices. Let's just start with the 10-year bond, U.S. Treasury bond for context, which is trading at 3.325% yield, which is basically unchanged from a week ago when it was at 3.328%. So we are down 0.003. I think we can call that unchanged turning to our metals. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on September 13th, gold is trading at $1,726.55 per ounce. That is $18 higher than last week. Silver is also higher at $19.80 per ounce. That is $1.53 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $911.80 per ounce. That is $72 higher than last week. And palladium is also higher at two thousand two hundred and two dollars and eighty cents per ounce that is a hundred and fifty nine dollars higher than last week very volatile palladium prices turning to our industrial metals copper is trading at three dollars and sixty two cents per pound that is 18 cents higher than last week aluminum is down two cents at a dollar three per pound lead is up a penny at 87 cents per pound and nickel is back above $10 at $10.07 per pound. That is $0.91 higher than last week. And tin remains under $10 at $9.66 per pound. And it is $0.18 lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound. And zinc is $0.03 higher at $1.46 per pound. So zooming out... It looks like the precious metals have caught a bid. They have not crashed. And industrial metals, I wouldn't go so far as to say there's wind in their sails. I'd say the status quo, they've stabilized. They are, you know, they have stopped falling. And nickels bounced a bit. Basically, I'd say industrial metals have bounced. After falling for, you know, three weeks in a row, they have bounced. And those are your metal prices and coming up we have Ore group founder and chairman Stephen Stewart who we are welcoming back to the program the reason I want to have Stephen on is so I could basically get a feel for what's going on in the Canadian mining sector from the explorers point of view he oversees six companies with the Ore group and they are exploration companies so I thought it was time to check in last time was in January And really, uh, I was surprised to learn there's no urgency, let's put it that way, from the federal government on getting mining projects done. Maybe this interview will do something to help that out. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Me today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Stephen Stewart, chairman and founder of the Orr Group, which is a private organization which runs, I believe, six public exploration companies. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing very well,
1: Adrian. Good morning. Good Monday morning to you and your listeners. Happy to be here.
0: Well, we're always pleased to have you. You are someone that is a recognized figure in the Canadian mining scene. For those who don't know you, though, or who are hearing you for the first time, just tell us a little bit about the OR Group and what it is, because it's kind of it's not your typical structure. Sure. Well, uh, we're a Toronto-based entrepreneur group who invests
1: and develops natural resource projects, primarily hard metal. We've got uh, six publicly traded companies within the group, QC Copper, or Finders Resources, American Eagle Gold, Baseload Energy, Mistango River Resource and, and Metal Energy. Each of those are focused on a particular project and commodity. Uh, we really love gold. We really love copper. Big fan of uranium and nickel amongst other things, but we generally stick to, uh, call it mainstream commodities. We don't get too exotic. We generally speaking stick to Canada. There's a very good reason for that, uh, you know, and geopolitics plays into that. But aside from the geopolitical aspects, the supply chain aspects, we like it because we we think Canada's got the amongst the best geology in the world, and why would we go elsewhere when it's in our backyard? We identify these opportunities. We try to be counter-cyclical. We always uh, look to find world-class discoveries, but as as we were discussing, those are those are rare and very difficult. So we try to play uh, the cycle. We take a commodity, uh, a macro commodity view on copper, for example. We got interested in copper when it was you know sub three dollars, and you know that's when we make our acquisitions. And we were patient. I think we allocate capital prudently. And uh, we invest in people, and we invest in good work, and we take our time, and I think we deliver good products. It's a high-risk business, so we try and devise a strategy that can mitigate as much of the risk that we can't control as possible. I think that's a, a long-winded
0: uh, but fair introduction to the OR group. Well, we always appreciate thorough, comprehensive answers, so that was a great introduction. So part of the reason I wanted to have you on, maybe the main reason actually, is I feel like you have a front row seat on the whole exploration sector. You know, in Canada, I mean, I was making the point last show that it seems to have a huge opportunity here with all of the, as you mentioned, geopolitical issues going on, you know, jurisdiction and also just the it's a massive landmass, which is gonna is bound to have something in it. So what is it like to be an exploration company right now? Are you popular? Like, how are things going? How do you see things? Well, right now, talking about specific in the current environment,
1: it's challenging. uh, Specifically on, you know, look at at ours and our our counterparts, the industry share prices are down substantially. So there's not, you could argue that there's not a lot of interest, but that would be the easy narrative. I think to me right now, it's incredibly interesting. And I think it's as interesting as I've ever seen it. Uh, one, because I do love, I love the down cycles. I hate seeing, you know, as as a significant shareholder and a CEO of some of these companies, it, it's hard to see your share price down near 52 or 104 week lows. That's difficult. But really that spells opportunity, particularly if you're well capitalized, which we are. So in a sense, uh, you don't worry about your share price on a day-to-day basis. You can't do that. That's short-term thinking. you got to look long-term and And uh, and and the part of the interesting part is long term. Some of our our peers don't necessarily feel that way, and hence they could be uh, on their back feet in terms of capitalization, looking for cash, and we can come in there and and solve problems with our money with a long term view. And so we have been, uh, at the last six months, very active on the acquisition front. Uh, We've announced some transactions. People can see some more. So. Uh that's coming between now and, and the year. We'll be announcing some new deals. And at the same time, we're also um, exploring. A year ago, uh, exploration costs were really, really high, as high as I've ever seen them. I think that's tapered off a little bit because by and large, my counterparts or, or my contemporaries have stopped drilling. Okay. That's not, you know, uh, mm. People are people are pulling back. So a year ago, two years ago, I couldn't get a driller. Now I can. I can get a whole bunch. You know, so so things are loosening up. Energy costs are are coming down. I mean, I wouldn't say anything's too material in terms of costs going down. And I'm I'm not overly anxious to be you know drilling right now because even if you put out great results, you know, you, you could trade down ten percent. You know, so it's it's hard to justify that allocation of capital for destruction of value, right? So that's that's part of our thesis, right? But you can't necessarily, it's not black and white, it's a very dynamic situation, but nonetheless. So it's, you know, right now is an exciting time because things are depressed. That's how we've built the org group portfolio is being counter cyclical. And that's how we're gonna grow our portfolio in the next six to 12 months. At the same time, I think it's just absolutely incredibly interesting what's going on. I'll, I'll call it the global macro situation, uh, electrification, you know and then the monetary system you know what's what's going on with inflation how the central bankers around the world are treating that has huge implications for precious metals which i just view as as currency frankly you know sound currency and uh, and as i said there the electrification the transition towards uh, a cleaner production cleaner transportation and 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 cleaner um, usage of energy which is you know uranium we believe in uranium it's it's carbon free it's clean um, it's it's baseload power. Uh, And then copper has huge implications. Anything that has an on-off switch is copper. If it's got, I mean, all these things need wiring, even if you're going to do solar or wind uh, and and the cars, everything needs a lot more copper if it's going to be electrified. And then there's the battery aspect as well. And and we we feel nickel fills that gap quite nicely. So we do see a huge uptick in demand of these various commodities Call it these inputs to a, a cleaner, greener energy future. But, you know, we're not really seeing the love on the, even the metal prices don't reflect where I think the, you know, the imbalance is going to be over the next three, five, even 10 years. And then I think the equity prices, i.e. the juniors, Certainly don't reflect that they are, you know, depressed relative to what I think are undervalued commodity prices. So there could be a huge, you know, double double torqued uplift there in the juniors. But you gotta you gotta be in the game. You gotta remain patient. You gotta be able to ride these downturns. And just when I say remain in the game, is you gotta allocate your capital effectively and, and protect your treasury. So you know, all in all, it's uh, it's a volatile time. Um, but it's a it's an incredibly interesting time. And going back to Canada, there's no place I'd rather be. And we took that philosophy uh, more than a decade ago. is is where we would focus the vast majority, not all of our our efforts. And while we we could not have predicted what is going on in terms of uh, what's going on in Europe and Ukraine and and all that. But I mean, we just knew those risks uh, of various sorts um, were out there and they're they're manifesting themselves right now. And we're seeing that in not just supply chain and how fragile that supply chain really is, but who are our friends and whether it's going to be considered uh, acceptable to do business with some of those countries, uh, many of which we rely very heavily upon for our natural resources. And so if we can bring it all back to Canada and 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 sort of secure that supply chain close to home you know and again not just you know for canada's productivity but we are on the doorstep of the world's largest economy an economy um, that i would never bet bet against certainly not uh, on a long-term sustained basis and i think their infrastructure is going to be as exciting their infrastructure build is going to be as exciting as china's been over the last 20 years because frankly they've been ignoring it and their infrastructure is crumbling and the same could be said for Canada. So if we are going to compete with the, call it the East, uh, and we are going to compete in an unfriendly way, you know, and th- there is a risk of a cold war, but maybe it's a cold, you know, infrastructural war. If we're going to compete and I, and we're going to have to, you know, I think the market is here.
0: Well, beautifully put. So then my question for you is, as someone that kind of oversees to a certain degree, maybe that's not the right word, six exploration companies. You know, we're seeing Ursula von der Leyen visit Saskatoon. I don't know. I I assume you guys have heard that. I saw a tweet on Twitter, believe it or not. Did you see that, by the way? Which one? Sorry. Did you see that Ursula von der Leyen is going to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan? No, I did not. It was in a tweet. Okay, I will send it to you. Uh, Yeah, that might be news to you. But where I was going with this is... You know, as you put it, it's like Canada is beautifully positioned and we're going to need a massive infrastructure build. And put it this way, even if we just keep going at the same rate, Russia, we have to assume, is going to be off the table. So my question for you, as someone that basically kind of helps oversee uh, six exploration companies, is are you getting everything you need from your government officials? Are they calling you? As I was saying before we talked, like if I was your... MP with mines in my district, I would be calling you and saying, hey, Stephen or whomever, CEO of Baseload or whomever, do you have everything you need? First, do you have everything you need? And and second, and is anybody reaching out to you and take that in whatever order you want? Okay, let me, uh, let
1: me sort of break that down. I mean, do I have everything we need? Well, we don't, first of all, we don't rely on the government, you know, to move our businesses forward. I mean, you have to be self-reliant. That's you know, that's, that's one thing I'll emphasize now. But at the same time, the government are our partners, as are the First Nations. I mean, you cannot build this on your own. You need to build it uh, with them. Um, they are, in effect, the gatekeepers to social license together with the, with the First Nations. Are they supportive? I mean, the answer is is yes. You know, they're not unsupportive, but I wouldn't say they're supportive. I think there is the narrative that we, need, we all need medals to uh, fulfill the supply demand needs for electrification. But I don't think that's really really come home to roost in the call it realities of the day-to-day function of the government and how they interact with the resource companies. I think by and large the resource, there's some adversarial um, interactions between the resource business and call it the governments of large. And of course there's many different colors of government and different levels of government. But by and large, I think you, you talked about keeping up with Russians and, and, the, and the status quo of the system. I think, you know, if we are going to realize these, you know, COP26 or whatever, you know, the UN is uh, forecasting in terms of uh, net, net zero, 2050, et cetera, 35, doesn't matter. You know, the, there has to be a complete transformation on how the governments, I mean, all three branches, uh, four, let's call it four branches – uh, federal, provincial, municipal, and also First Nations. Uh, these are all um, uh, bodies that we need to work together with to achieve our objectives. And I really do believe they are all mutually aligned objectives here, is to is to get resources responsibly out of the ground for the benefit of our economy so we can create jobs, uh, infrastructure, wealth, etc. cetera. Uh, but I don't think that practically speaking, um, I mean, I would say they're more of, and I say, and again, broad terms here, it's more of an impediment. This, let's just call it the system is an impediment for resource development uh, and and mine building again i think everybody you know well understands this is old news that we want to do things responsibly and that means from an, from an environmental sustainable and and call it social license uh, local impact aspects right so assuming we're all um, in business to do good business because it's not that you know we're necessarily altruistic but that's how you do good business right is you, you pay attention you do things right so let's just you know assume we're all doing that uh, if we are um, then the process to from discovery to you know drill permits so on and so forth to production is way too long and if we are ever going to compete with the east as mm. i was saying before i forget it it's just not going to happen so there has to be a completely transform you know transformational viewpoint mm on supporting permitting these projects. It needs to be streamlined totally and like not, you know, not 50%, you know, substantially. There has, there's, you know, the, the permitting process needs to be unified. It has to be stop becoming a black box because, um, you know, you can get permitted from one area and then, you know, the other area takes it away and you're back to square one in, in a sense. So if the powers that be, if the system is truly committed to, Decarbonization and you know less pollution then I think you know there has to be a a total 180 on the attitude and approach to permitting mining projects here in Canada and around the world.
0: Okay, so you're not seeing what I would consider like a war mentality where it's like, okay, a lot has happened in the last six months, we're shifting course and we're we need resources and again we're getting on the phone. you're not seeing that is what you're telling me.
1: No, I'm not. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be candid. If I'm getting a call from, call it the authorities, it's it's not one supporting me. It's one asking me to, you know, clarify a permit or, you know, it's more likely to be a delay than an assistance call, uh, you know, by
0: far. Okay. Yeah. Like that's the, that's why I called you. <laughs> okay. That's, that's why we, because they need to hear that because they might, maybe some of them don't realize it or, you know, the people who aren't calling, you know, or so, well, it's such a big okay. organization. And,
1: you know, I mean, like, again, like it's, it's, you know, I, I hate to to paint broad strokes, but I'm just speaking from my seat. And so, you know, the government or the system is, you know, the, the right hand rarely talks to the left hand, especially when you talk about the various levels. So, I mean, I think the intent is there. And I am, you know, what I can say is that the, the narrative, the language that, you know, certainly some governments are using seems to recognize that, you know, we need these metals if we are going to supplant fossil fuel the burning of fossil fuels you know clearly we need alternatives and those alternatives for anybody who you know pays even 1% attention knows that that means metals so unless it's pure bluster those two things have to come together and so at least let's start with the narrative because that's where it starts and then it does take time to filter down and then frankly you know, the only way real change is going to happen, Adrian. And unfortunately, I wish it was as simple as getting on this podcast, which I listen to and 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 having them listen to us and say, hey, wake up. No, it's that's not going to be it. They need a crisis. And so something has to snap on, you know, a, a global basis or a local basis or some of these, you know, I hope this is not the way, but some of these forecasts, whether it is, you know, uh, these long term forecasts in 2030, 2035, 2050, they just have to be You know, the realization has to come to fruition that they're just impractical completely. You know, but that takes too long. So, you know, odds are there'll be some sort of a crisis. Hopefully it's a simple one, but hopefully it does give the powers that be, the politicians, you know, the opportunity. Because sometimes they need an excuse. You know, I think a lot of the politicians out there want to do these things, but they have a lot of challenges. So they really need, call it some ammunition, to go out there and and do some fundamental changes because change is
0: hard. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. Like it's easy for us to, or particularly for me to say, well, why isn't this happening? And, you know, it's because it, it's complicated and there's a lot of people involved and there's a lot of stakeholders is the word they like to use, you know? So, okay. But just to emphasize and highlight, because this is what I hear almost always is permitting is really at the top of the list. Uh, permitting times, is that correct for you? Like just to highlight that?
1: Yeah, I think it it is permitting times, and it's the multi-permitting channels. You know, there really should be, um, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but there should be one singular body, you know, that that liaises with all levels of government, including, you know, uh, call it local communities, and we should interface with them. And their sole task should be the advancement, the responsible advancement of resource projects. And if there was that body, you know that was all-encompassing and had a very clear plan. And you know you can download the you know how to develop a mind, you know, not to be too simplistic about it, but like if there was this uh, transparent framework that was developed, published, and and everybody understood, so they they published the rules of the game, and there was a single authority who was overseeing anything, I mean, I think that would be trans transformative. and I think that's an opportunity. and and you and I think Canada does have an opportunity to just totally hit it out of the park. You know, even with even with our fossil fuels, like I mean, you know, as much as we are going to be transitioning towards electrification, I think that's inevitable. I I do think it's going to take a lot longer than uh, anybody, not anybody, but I call it the masses are uh, the mass politicians are forecasting. It's going, you know, even if we went all to solar tomorrow, how do you think they manufacture all of the you know inputs to into the wind in, into these panels or the wind turbines? It all takes fossil fuels, so you know, we have to live with that reality. We have huge, I mean, look at the opportunity for natural gas right now. I mean, I wish we had, you know, we, we, we built that pipeline out east and we could have built some LNG terminals. We would be the the answer to your problem sitting in Germany this morning or this afternoon over there. So, you know, that that to me is a, an opportunity that, that I think needs to be realized. And then, you know, again, going back to the uh, transition to electrification, we have copper. We have the best uranium deposits in the world, but not nothing comes close. Um, I think there's a false narrative about uranium. It's totally full of misinformation, oftentimes propagated by, you know, the energy industry. The oil and gas industry love to hate uranium because uranium is part of the equation. There's no question about it. And in the Athabasca, we have uh, high-grade deposits like nowhere else. We should be exploiting those. And then we've got copper deposits as well, you know, which is part of it. Nickel, you know, Sudbury, Thompson. All those areas, and then the Ring of Fire, which is a, an area that you know was sort of tied up and call it all sorts of political and social license turmoil, which hopefully is moving forward. But I mean, that to me is just indicative of, of the the type of geology we have here and the ability we have to serve not just the North American market but the world market in terms of these commodities, which are in in, in dire need and will be, and we're going to see a, a greater disparity over the next uh, in the coming years. Let's take the bull by the horns. Let's totally transform the, you know, the permitting and the call it licensing regime so that we reclaim our leadership role in the mining industry. We wore that crown for a long time. I fear it's gone. But, you know, I think with a a little bit of ambition and determination, we still have those tools and we can we can reclaim that crown.
0: I totally agree with you. It's an embarrassment of riches that Canada is sitting on. And really, if Canada can't fill that gap that is growing by the day urgently, it is a failure of will. And it's just a failure. It's a political failure if we can't fill that gap, if Canada can't fill that gap. So which troubles me that I'm not hearing that you're, that things are changing because, you know, I think whether the West realizes it or not, it's at war, at least economically right now. And As you say, like even if they want to reach their 2030 climate goals, if they want to do what they say they want to do, they need to be calling you on the phone and saying, do you have everything you need and can we speed this up for you? Not, as you say, uh, by the way, you forgot to send this form XYZ, which is going to do ABRW
1: yeah, look, I, I agree. I mean, I think by and large, those forecasts are are simply are simply completely unrealistic unless they start doing that and 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 calling us. and And you're right, it would be nice. It would be nice to feel supported. Uh, as I said, I don't think there you know there are adversaries, but I don't think the realities have hit home. And I don't think that those realities have filtered down into the people on the front lines that actually deliver the support. Um, again, they are all well-intentioned people, but they're, everybody's just following marching orders and you know, the, you know, I don't think there's clarity on those marching orders yet, but it's coming. I just hope it's coming, you know, sooner than later. And, you know, I mean, and if they don't do it tomorrow, you know, 2030 or 2035 is just, you know,
0: not a reality. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so just as we close here, what are you excited about? Tell us, you know, maybe your projects or what metals are exciting you. As you're saying, it couldn't be more interesting and the opportunity knocks. What's exciting you right now?
1: Okay, well, let's talk about commodities. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of them. Um, and, and all of the commodities we're, we're into. Gold, for the monetary purposes, I think there's uh, gold is is extremely interesting. And And while we don't have a lot of ex- exposure to silver, I would say the same for silver. I love copper. I love uranium and I love nickel, and it's really all about, you know, just energy and power and filling that void, which we see. So, I mean, those are the commodities, gold, uh, copper, uranium, and nickel. That's what we love. Uh, We'll continue to invest in those. Any one of them could go down 25% tomorrow, okay? But, you know, short term doesn't matter. We have a long term views, long term directional bets on their supply demand fundamentals and ultimately their price. So that, those are the commodities I like. There's others, but that's where we focus in terms of what I'm excited about in my uh, my own business. Well, it's, I just love drilling. Um, you know, we are drilling. We've got really exciting. We've got three or four drill programs going on right now. We have a mine, we believe, a QC Copper. Uh, It's a very exciting deposit there. It's large. It's getting bigger. So you know we're we're very excited to come out with subsequent reports, which define and help the market realize what we have there. We're drilling something very exciting on, on American Eagle Gold. Uh, We're drilling porphyry targets there, copper gold in in British Columbia, and then of course we've had you know phenomenal success with Baseload, discovering a grassroots uranium deposit. I shouldn't say deposit yet, but you know it it has the the makings of one, and it's very near surface, which is extremely rare. And uh, you know we're excited about that. And last, you know, Metal Energy is is busy drilling away its nickel project. So it's you know everything can change on a dime with with an exploration with a drill program. So it's just exciting. You know, I, I wake up every morning and I check you know the the overnight reports and you know looking for great assays and, and great news. We can we can generate some excitement. You know, we're treasure hunters. I love this business. You have you know still the you have better days, uh, more more good days and bad days. It is volatile, but you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do anything else. So that sort of sums it up from my seat, Adrian.
0: Well, it sounds like a very exciting place to be. Stephen Stewart, chairman and founder of the Orr Group, thank you for once again joining us on the Northern Miner Podcast. My pleasure. Once again for joining us on the Northern Miner podcast, and thank you once again to Stephen Stewart, founder and chairman of the Ore Group, for really delivering some very interesting information here on the situation from the Canadian explorer's point of view. And coming up in the next couple of weeks, we have the Global Mining Symposium. Go to events.northernminer.com to reserve your space. I hope you have a wonderful start the Media New Year and until next week take care.